Thanks for downloading this podcast from Burghead Free Church in Murray, Scotland. We exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Our vision is to grow to be a vibrant all-age church of 100 disciples. Find out more at burgheadfreechurch.org. reading is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What is the biggest problem in the world? Uh, I spent a bit of time this week uh, reading stuff on the United Nations website because I'm a fun-loving kind of a guy. The UN lists 18 global issues we need to tackle. The website says it's not an exhaustive list, but here are some of the major problems we need to tackle. It includes aging populations, AIDS, big data, gender equality, Africa. I think I might be a bit offended if I was an African and realized that my continent was one of the big problems in the world, but I think we know what they mean. The list rounds off with things like human rights, migration, and, of course, climate change. Uh, The UN does not attempt to put these issues in order of priority. But if you had to do that, what would be number one? What, according to you, is the big problem, the biggest problem? we face or try this question on for size instead let's make it more personal what about you what according to you is your biggest problem right now is it old age 
Is it future uncertainty? Is it the lack of a job or the loss of a loved one? Is it not enough me time in the spa? I went to a spa this week, actually. I'll tell you about that another time. It's got nothing to do with this at all. But what about according to Jesus? According to him, what is the biggest problem you face? What's the biggest problem our world faces? Well, that is the question at the heart of this passage today. And uh, before we get there, though, let's briefly revisit last week's theme again. That's our first heading today, the greatest message. Mark very helpfully gives us a bit of a summary of what we were looking at last week. Read from verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, <coughs> the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So do you remember last week? Wherever Jesus went, he could not escape the crowds. Why? What was drawing all these people to see him? Well, mainly it seems it was Jesus' astonishing ability to heal. If you cast your eyes back a few verses in your Bible, you'll see a recent example. Jesus has just healed a man with leprosy in a single touch. And although Jesus sent him away, this is chapter 1, verse 43, with a warning to keep quiet, instead the man does the opposite. He goes around broadcasting the amazing things that Jesus has done for him. And as a result, chapter 1, verse 45, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. He had to stay outside in the lonely places. And yet the people still came to him from everywhere. And we understand their instinct, don't we? We all live in a broken world with broken bodies. No wonder people were flocking to him for healing. But remember, as we saw last week, Jesus has not come just to patch up the world, one physical healing at a time. He's come with a deeper solution to life's deeper problems. And because of that, Jesus says he's not primarily come to heal, he's come to preach. In other words, he's got a message to bring. And do you remember the summary of that message? Chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That was Jesus' message. And Jesus was crystal clear on the priority of preaching that message. Remember there was that time when the disciples kind of pressed him to do more healing come on Jesus come back and do some more but he replied chapter 1 verse 38 no let us go elsewhere to the nearby villages so I can preach there also that is why I have come and so here at the start of chapter 2 we see Jesus sticking firmly to the script as it were firmly to that priority read it again chapter 2 verse 1 a few days later uh, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he'd come home. They gathered in such large numbers, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Jesus knows there is a greater need that all of us have. Greater even than the need for physical health and healing. And so we arrive at our second point tonight. Our greatest need. Read on, uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 3. 
Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Now, I know some of you know this passage very, very well. It's easy to lose the drama. But let's try and picture the scene in our mind's eye. We're not told exactly who this house belongs to. It could be Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Anyway, whoever the owner is, I always kind of wonder what the owner made of it all. A bunch of local fellas up on the flat roof, which would probably have been made of sort of mud and earth. They start hacking a great big hole in it. And maybe you can picture the scene. There is Jesus. He's teaching to these enthralled crowds. And then suddenly... On the floor by Jesus' feet start to fall these clods of mud and earth. And slowly but surely people lift up their eyes to the ceiling to see the the break of daylight come through it. And then the hole gets bigger and bigger and more sunlight breaks in. And then I reckon with great drama the paralyzed man gets lowered by his friends to rest there at Jesus' feet. I reckon it's safe to say there was a silence that fell on the room at this point. What's going on here? This is a dramatic moment, isn't it? What will happen next? Now, of course, everyone in the room, and there's a lot of people there, everyone in the room thinks they know exactly what will happen next. Remember why all these crowds are gathering, right? It's not just because they're impressed with Jesus' teaching. I mean, they are, that's true, but it really seems to be the healing miracles. That's the thing that really brings them in. Add to that, it could not be more obvious what this man and his friends want. They know that Jesus is a healer. Crowds are gathering to see the healer, and they bring their paralyzed friends to him. It is blatantly obvious to the paralytic and to his friends and to the crowd that that, that this man's biggest problem is the fact that his legs don't work. But Jesus doesn't agree. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus' clear point is this. Despite what the man thinks, despite what the crowd thinks, despite what you or I may think, this paralyzed man's biggest problem is not his paralysis. It's the problem of his sin. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not making a connection between sin and paralysis, at least not in any direct way. He's not saying that this man is paralyzed because of his sin. That's not the point. Instead, I think Jesus chooses to make this particular point about sin with this particular man because if sin is the greatest problem for a paralytic then you and I can be absolutely sure that sin is definitely the greatest problem for you and I. Do you see? Paralysis affects this man's earthly life. And let's not beat around the bush. It affects his earthly life in a huge and dramatic and negative way. But the point is, what we do with our sin, well, that affects us for all eternity. Physical health affects our relationships with the things and people of life now. 
Sin cuts us off from relationship with God. And if our sins are not dealt with, we are heading for hell and judgment. And so Jesus is kind enough to deal with this man's biggest problem. And our biggest problem. I think we need to say that we need to hold our nerve on this. See, when we look around us and our friends and family, the people in our village, at work, all that, all the rest of the stuff, some people might look very needy, right? Maybe they are sick or homeless or jobless or addicted to drugs or alcohol or whatever it is. Other people, frankly, that we look at seem pretty well adjusted, right? Successful, financially secure, even rich. But Jesus' point is that both alike, whether they are rich or poor, whether they are in sickness or in health, their greatest problem is sin. And here's how one Bible commentator puts it. In forgiving sins, Jesus identifies and deals with the man's greatest need, greater even than his physical condition. There is no lack of compassion for Jesus, from Jesus. He sees beyond the awful physical condition of the man to a deeper and bleaker problem, his need of forgiveness. Thus, Jesus demonstrates a depth of compassion beyond even the man's physical healing. And Davy and Emma, that's just to make you feel at home because that's the minister of your previous church in Edinburgh. The question is really simple. It's not so much what will you do about your physical needs, it's what will you do with your sin. And Jesus is clear that there are only two options. You can keep it for yourself and take it with you on the day of judgment when you stand before God. And you yourself can bear the full force of God's right wrath against sin. Or you can give it to Jesus. And let him take it to the cross where he has paid for the sin of his people so that you and I need never fear God's judgment. What will you do with your sin? It is your greatest problem. Before we move on, just notice one more thing here. That there's a connection here between faith and forgiveness. Look at verse 5 again. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we should say that the faith on display here in Mark chapter 2, it's not very developed. It's not a particularly well-informed faith. We probably shouldn't build our whole idea of what faith is on this one verse. In fact, that's rarely a good idea to do that with, with one verse of the Bible. For a start, it's the man's friends and not the man himself who are commended for their faith. And it should be said, too, that I think the friends had faith that Jesus could heal their friend. I reckon this stuff about forgiveness of sins was probably a surprise to them as well. But at very least, I think we can say Jesus draws some attention to the fact that there is a connection of some kind between faith and forgiveness. The question is, who will be forgiven? Is it everybody? Jesus' answer is no. Only those who come to him in faith. 
Anyway, Mark keeps on moving, as he likes to do uh, through this story. We must do that as well. We've seen the greatest message. We've seen our greatest need. And now thirdly, Jesus' great authority. Read on, verse 6. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These teachers of the law, along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they made up the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And we've already seen in Mark's gospel, just from chapter 1, that they're going to have this conflict with Jesus, and now this conflict begins to escalate. We'll see that right through Mark's gospel. They have a theological objection to what Jesus says. And we've got to say they know their theology, they know their stuff. They'd have been right through ETS and got full marks, I'm sure, Davy. They are quite right that only God can forgive sins. Now, of course, if, if I sin against you, for example, by lying to you, that, then yes, in, in one sense, I've sinned against you and you can choose to forgive me. I've sinned against you, but ultimately, of course, I've sinned against God. Why? Well, because sin is breaking God's law. God has told me not to lie, and so in choosing to lie, I'm, yes, I'm sinning against you, but in an ultimate way, all sin is, is sin against God. Because as 1 John 3 verse 4 says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So when these Jewish leaders say, only God can forgive sins, they're absolutely right. On top of that, since Jesus is claiming to be able to forgive sins, they know perfectly well that in saying that, Jesus is actually claiming to be God. And that, in their eyes, is blasphemy. Although, of course, it's only blasphemy if it's not true. And if you wanted any evidence for the fact that Jesus is divine, well, look at the very next verse. Here's a verse that slips under the radar, but it's worth noticing. Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Compare that with Psalm 139, verse 4, which says, Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Who knows our inmost thoughts? Only God does. What does Jesus demonstrate? That he knows our inmost thoughts. So who is Jesus? He's God. And if you want further evidence that Jesus is claiming to be God here, look at the title, the name he uses for himself. He says there in verse 10, he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, our natural assumption when we hear that title, Son of Man, is, is to think Jesus is talking about his humanity. We, we know, don't we, that Jesus is fully man and fully God. And we think Son of Man, that sounds kind of... Manny, you know, it sounds like he's talking about his humanity. Actually, the opposite is true. That title, Son of Man, is a quote from Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> and in that chapter, we get shown a vision of several human kingdoms, 
And all the human kingdoms rise and fall, as human kingdoms tend to do. But that is then contrasted with God's everlasting kingdom, which will endure forever. And in Daniel chapter 7, that everlasting kingdom is governed by one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven who approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. So the message here is crystal clear. In claiming to forgive sins, in knowing people's unspoken thoughts, and in calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus is claiming to be God. And so now it's Jesus' turn to ask them a searching question. Read on, verse 8. He said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Now, the answer is obvious. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven, well, because that can't be proven. I can't see one way or the other whether that forgiveness has been effective or not. There are no physical signs for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus then does the healing miracle, yes, of course, out of compassion for the man, but primarily to show that he has the power to forgive sins. He does the visible miracle of healing to show he has the power to do the invisible miracle of forgiveness. He does the, physical, the, <laughs> he does the visible miracle of healing easy for me to say, to show he has the power to do the invisible miracle of forgiveness. Verse 10, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So the greatest message, our greatest need, Jesus' great authority. Lastly now, Jesus' great priority. If this was a kind of isolated incident in Mark's gospel, maybe we'd just sort of pass over it. But straight away now, Mark guides us into another very similar episode. We'll we'll read it much more briefly. Read from verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him. It's a repeated theme, isn't it? And he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The point is, there were plenty of, quote, unquote, righteous people hanging around Jesus. And By the way, Jesus really means self-righteous people. They don't see themselves as sinners, or at least 
not very serious sinners, certainly not the kind of sinners who are, who are in need of Jesus' help. And Jesus says something really pretty stark here. Maybe we're too familiar with these verses to see it. Jesus is saying, if you think you don't need him, if you think you're fine without him and the forgiveness he brings, that Jesus has not come for you. The reality, of course, is that all of us are sinners against a holy God. We're all in desperate need of forgiveness, heading to hell and judgment unless Jesus intervenes. But Jesus says, if you don't see it that way, if you don't think you need him, well, he hasn't come for you. He won't help you. Now, those self-righteous people would have looked down on the paralytic, probably. They would certainly have looked down on this tax collector, scum of the earth, lowest of the low. I wonder what our equivalents are today. Maybe it's the drug addict. Maybe it's the sex offender. Maybe it's the alcoholic. Those are the sinners, we say. Not us. But if that's your attitude, Jesus has not come to help you. On the other hand, if you understand yourself to be, at the end of the day, not so different from the offender or the drug addict or the alcoholic or the tax-cheating fraud, if you know that you too, like them, are a sinner, then take heart. Because Jesus says you are exactly the person he's come for. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And with Jesus, here's the best thing. It's not just all talk. He backs up the talk with action. Ultimately, he can declare forgiveness with his lips because he will buy forgiveness with his life at the cross. And we'll close out with a few more words from Davy and Emma's old minister, Robin. Mark has already signaled at Jesus' baptism that Jesus has not only come to preach a message of forgiveness, but to be himself the means of that forgiveness through his sacrificial death. If you are sick with sin, take heart. You're just the person Jesus has come for. Let's pray, shall we? Maybe we'll just have a moment of, of quiet. We can reflect on all that God has said to us. Reflect on our great need of him at just the right moment. When we were still sinners, Jesus came for us. Lord, how we thank you that you looked with kindness on us in all our rebellion against you. That you didn't treat us as our sins deserve. That as high as the heavens are above the earth and as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins for us, from us in Jesus. 
Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases and redeems our life from the pit and crowns us with love and compassion. Lord, we thank you that in Jesus you've done all that for us. Lord, we pray for any perhaps here tonight or watching at home who know that they're sinners but have yet to come to Jesus and receive from him this wonderful forgiveness. Lord, we pray that tonight you would be at work in them just as you're at work in us. That they would see very clearly that Jesus has come for them to bring them home and wash them clean, to draw them to himself and to find their place too in the family of God. Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you'd like to be up to date with each week's talk, why not search Burkhead Free Church on your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. For more information, go to burkheadfreechurch.org.